In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now let's welcome Nick Hunter up to give the message. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, I remember those days back, uh, we were meeting on Saturday nights when we started. And you know, the best thing about having church only on Saturday nights is that then you can have sleepovers with your friends from church, and then you can sleep in on Sunday. It's amazing. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really an honor to, to be up here to be speaking to you guys. Um, I'm really pumped. God has put this message on my heart. Um, it's actually for about the past year now. I've actually kind of been thinking about it. And so when Van asked me to speak, I was really excited. And my hope for today is that everyone in this room would want to take a step closer to Jesus in intimacy. Like you would want to do that more than you did when you woke up this morning. So you'd be one step closer in wanting to draw nearer to God. Uh, The title of my message is God is a Person. And so I'm going to be talking about interacting with God as a person, Jesus, and what that looks like to draw closer to him. And when I was thinking about it, I thought of three categories that I feel like most people fall in, in our culture at least, when it comes to satisfaction with life. Like, are, are you satisfied with the way your life is right now? And I feel like there's one category where you're kind of, you're just trying to stay afloat. So maybe one thing happens after the other. You feel like, man, this happens. Maybe a relational crisis, maybe a financial crisis, you know, sickness, whatever it is, you feel like you just can't catch a break. You're just, you're just struggling to stay afloat. And then there's the second category of people, which I would say is like the American dream. And this would be, you do have the job. You do have the family, you know, maybe the white picket fence, the 2.2 kids, whatever that looks like. You do have what we have labeled in America as, you know, like the dream life. And the problem, what can happen there is if we become too satisfied with making our life look perfect, then we stop wanting to take risk. We stop wanting to press in for more, for the greater things, and we sort of just become complacent and say, hey, this is, this is good, right? You know, I have everything in order. And there's obviously nothing wrong with having those things in your life. You know, God wants us to prosper, and I believe we're all supposed to be like um, in Psalms where it says the tree planted by streams of water, which bears fruit in all seasons. And so the third category would be a category that I would say you can only reach when you are in relationship with God as a person. When you are pursuing Jesus and you become like what Paul says in Philippians, where he says, you know, whether I'm well fed or, or hungry, whether I'm rich or poor, it doesn't matter because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so he's saying like, all right, we don't have to have everything in line. We don't have to have everything perfect. That when we're in relationship with Jesus, we can do all things. And so that's just my hope for today, that that you wouldn't just have a relationship to Jesus, but you would have a relationship with Jesus. You see, everyone has a relationship to Jesus. Everyone in this room was created by Jesus for the purpose of experiencing him and, and being in a love relationship with him. And so you are a creation. 
You know, your identity is a son or a daughter, whether you know that or not. And, but not everyone has a relationship with Jesus, which involves, like Van mentioned in his message, entering into a new covenant where the old covenant, which was works and needing to gain approval, needing to do the right thing to get God's approval. Now we enter into a new covenant, which is where we get what Jesus paid for. Jesus got what we paid for, which was death, so that we could get what he deserves, which is life and life in in the fullness. And so his blood is what paid for that. And I believe we're all called to just have an intimate relationship with God as a person. And so what do relationships take? They take trust. My first point is that relationships are built on trust. This is true in any level of relationship you're in. If, If you are in a relationship with another human being, you're giving up control of, of the circumstances. You're saying, okay, I'm not going to control everything. I'm going to do things with you or interact with you where I'm not sure what you're going to do, but I trust you. And this is even like if you're in, with a stranger, you know, like sitting next to him on the bus, you're actually trusting that they're not going to do anything crazy, you know? Like, they're not going to reach over and just punch you in the face while you're sitting there on the, on the bus. You're trusting them. So you're giving up that little bit of control. And this goes from, you know, a stranger relationship all the way to the most intimate of relationships. Like a husband and wife, you know, or like what we're called to be with God. And so, relationship requires trust, but it's not only us trusting God. God actually trusts us. And this is something that we don't think about as much. I think one of the main ways that this happens is that Jesus trusts us to step into relationship with him. And he trusts us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross just for the chance of being in relationship with you. He, it's not a guarantee. He didn't know. You know, when they were, when they were deciding that Jesus was going to come down and die, they didn't say like, all right, this is going to be a big sacrifice, but it's worth it because everyone's going to enter into relationship it's, it's, he's letting us decide. He's trusting us. He's giving us the power to either say yes or say no to him. You could just completely walk away from Jesus. He's not going to manipulate you, but he will make it very hard for you to resist him because he's a good God and he's a good father and he'll put circumstances in your life that will make it hard for you to resist that. Another way that God trusts us is Um, What Paul talks about in Romans where he says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means he doesn't ever take them back. He doesn't give his gifts with strings attached. And so when in the context of this is he's talking about the Israelites who God gave promises to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they walked away from him so many times. They messed it up so many times. Paul was saying that God isn't taking that calling back from them. And God will actually equip people with gifts like of healing and, and, and let people have a ministry of healing and signs and wonders. And if they walk away from him, they can still do those signs and wonders. Isn't that crazy? God doesn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour out my spirit on you and you have to use it for good. He's not, he's not giving those strings attached. We can actually walk away from God and, and he would still let us keep those gifts. So he trusts us and we're also called to trust him. 
In John 14, 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And he's talking right after he tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times. He, He knows that Peter will deny Jesus three times. And he says, all right, Peter. Or he's talking to all the disciples. He says, guys, trust in me. He knows that Peter will feel terrible when he ends up denying him. But he's saying, it's not about what you do. It's not about the fact that you're going to betray me. It's about what I've done. Trust in me. So Jesus is always trying to point us towards himself as a person. Another great verse comes from Proverbs 3, 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So this is saying that even when your own understanding might not comprehend the things that God is doing in your life, still trust in God. It doesn't always make sense. It's hard not to lean on our own understanding, right? I like to lean on my own understanding. I like to understand things. You know, it's like the other day I was driving and I was heading up towards Loveland from downtown. So 71 North, straight shot. But I had the address in my GPS because I didn't know exactly how to get there. And I got to the point where I was supposed to, going where I thought I was supposed to go. And Google tells me, merge onto 50 East. And I'm like, no, I, that's not where I want to go. I know where I'm going. So I'm just going to get on the road I think I should. And Google is going to correct itself. All right. Uh, and uh, so, so I hop on 71 North. And it's, it, sure enough, it corrects and says, stay on 71 North for 16 miles or whatever. And then... Right after that, a couple seconds of silence, as if it was just letting me, you know, like, does that feel good that you chose the way you wanted to go, you know? (laughs) After a couple seconds, it says, there is a 10-minute delay caused by an accident four miles ahead of you. And so right then, I just felt like I betrayed this Google lady, whatever her name is, you know? (laughs) And and yeah, I, I felt like, wow, I... I was trying to lean on my own understanding and Google was looking out for my best interests, trying to reroute me around the traffic. So sure enough, exactly four miles ahead, it was like stopped traffic. And I I had to sit there, you know, anguishing in in my pain of, of not following Google. And so this idea of trusting when it doesn't make sense is really hard. It's not something easy, but God is calling every person in this room to trust in him, you know, regardless of whether you understand what he's calling to or not. We have to be okay to live in mystery. We have to be okay with stepping into something because God looks at our heart. He knows, he knows when we're doing something out of hunger for more of him. It's okay to ask God for a sign, you know, but it, are you looking for proof or are you looking for more of him? That's the question. And God will, God will see that. So, Relationship is built on trust, and we'll talk about uh, proof in Revelation a little bit more here in a second, but the second point is that relationships are fun, and so this is just something that's been on my heart a lot because when I was in school out at Bethel, I had a pastor named Dave, tall British guy with red hair, and uh, he, he actually gave me the title for this sermon, that God is a person. I was meeting with him one day and we were talking about uh, what happens during revival group. Revival group was a group of about 60 people. 
It was kind of like your family during school because there's 2,000 people in school. It's easy to get lost. So we had a revival group. In our revival group, we would sit in silence and wait on the Lord and just see what he wanted to do. And it, it, sometimes it got a little crazy. People would start laughing. You know, some people would just start singing spontaneously. Some people would start dancing. Sometimes we would do just these goofy interactions, you know, that we were just having fun. We were like little children in God's presence. And Dave would be the leader of this. He showed us an example of someone who didn't care what people thought about him. He didn't care whether we even thought he was a great leader or not. Because it would have been easy to say, he's not even leading He's just letting the Holy Spirit do everything. You know, he's not even leading. But he knew that he wanted to instill in us the idea that God is a person. And so one day in his office, we were talking about that. And he said, in his British accent, he was like, he's like, Nick, I'm going to give you four words that will change your life. (laughs) And I just leaned in and he's like, you can meditate them, meditate on them for the rest of your life. And it's that God is a person. And it was just so beautiful in that moment. And I mean, you can say anything in a British accent and it sounds good, you know, and you'll believe it. But, but it was just this really real moment where he was opening something to me, opening my understanding into like what he was thinking when he was leading us in these times. And he took it to extremes. I, I remember at the end of the year, a lot of the revival group pastors got up to give kind of an end of the year charge, a little sermon. And he was one of the main leaders of our school. So he had a half hour slot for him. And he got up on the stage and he stood in silence for half an hour. And you can imagine how awkward that would be. And we're looking around. We're used to it by now, our revival group. It's only like 60 of us out of the whole. And so we kind of just go into the like receiving mode. We're just like... You know, we know what's happening. Everyone else is like, are we waiting on something? Are we supposed to do something? And he literally just did not care what people thought about him. And he, he taught me that God is a person and we can pursue him and it's fun. And one way that we pursue God in a fun environment is during worship. And guys, I love where our worship has been going. I love that we've been, you know, getting freer in in worship and that we've been really pursuing the presence. And I feel that's one area where God just wants to break loose something here at Vineyard Church Northwest that we're going to pursue him and we're even going to get a little goofy in our worship. How's that sound? Yeah, I I love the word goofy because it even saying it, you just feel kind of goofy, right? Like and I think of King David in the Old Testament when he danced before the Lord because he was excited that the Ark of the Covenant was coming back to Jerusalem, that the presence of God was coming back to Jerusalem. And we see that in, uh, in Psalm 1611, it says, we're full of joy in your presence. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. And guys, it used, his presence used to reside in things, in buildings. Now it resides in us. We carry the very presence of God. And so we can carry joy around us wherever we go. And so David was dancing before the Lord. He ripped his clothes off, was dancing. And Saul's daughter was like, David, what are you doing? Like, there's girls around. Come on. And, and he was just like, I'm going to get even more undignified than this. 
So you think he's a king. Kings are supposed to be dignified, you know, or so we think. And he says, I'm going to get even more undignified. And my translation, which is not based on Hebrew or anything like that, is I'm going to get even goofier than this. I feel like that's what he was saying. Like, oh, you think, you think you've seen something? I'm going to get even goofier, you know? He was, he was saying that the joy of the Lord, you know, was going to override any fear of man, any fear of what other people thought of him. He was pumped for the presence of God. He had a relationship with God as a person. It was intimate. It was messy at times. If you read the Psalms, you see some of that messiness of him being just so mad at God sometimes and then coming back and be like, God, you're everything. I love you. You know, I want to I dwell in your presence all the days of my life. So we see that David, David had this down, that relationship is fun. Relationship with God is supposed to be fun. Just another quick verse, Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, that's Jesus' whole message. That's what he was preaching. That's what we want. It's the kingdom of God, and there's joy in that. And so, one thing I love to do, this is thanks to Steve and Wendy Backlin, two people from Bethel Church. Um, they have a ministry called Igniting Hope. And some of us are actually on a fast right now um, for Lent. And it's actually, we're fasting negativity. And so that is, um, Steve and Wendy have, you know, spearheaded that. And one thing they love to do is laugh at lies. And this is based out of the verse in the Bible I think it's in Psalms or Proverbs, where God looks at the plans of his enemies and then he laughs. Isn't that funny? So he, God's up there like, oh, they're trying to do that. <laughs> they're trying to do that. They think that's going to work. They think that's going to stop my kingdom from advancing. And he laughs at them because he's a joy-filled God. So I thought it'd be cool just to laugh this morning, to increase the joy level And I have a couple lies here that we can just laugh at. Um, So feel free to just laugh at this with me. Here's one. I'm not a joyful person. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no. You see, that lie is rooted in another lie, that your identity is in your emotions. (laughs) And... And it's just so funny because no, if you are in Christ, your identity is in Christ. And Christ is a joy-filled person. Some people accuse him of being a drunkard, okay? Jesus knew how to turn up at parties, all right? He, Jesus, Jesus was not just a person who would just shy back, you know, all the time. He valued the intimate time alone. But when he was with people, he was a fun person. He was filled with joy. And I feel like that is what we're called to as well. So relationship is built on trust. Relationship is fun. And my third point and and the main thrust of this message is that Jesus desires a relationship with every person in this room. Every person he's ever created, he desires a relationship with. And most of this message is going to come from the book of John. And John was Jesus' best friend, basically. So if you want to learn about intimacy, if you want to learn about what it looks like to have a relationship with a person, with Jesus, read through John, okay? That's like his best friend going along with him, and he records a lot of the things that we don't see in the other Gospels. And so let's look at John 2. 
because we're going to see this difference between proof and revelation and, and what that means. So here in John 2, Jesus is changing water into wine. That's pretty fun. That's a party trick right there, right? You know, <clears throat> talk about Jesus being a fun person. He's like, water? I'll do you one better. Wine. And uh, so he's just done this. And here's what it says in verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So he reveals his glory to them through this miraculous act, but it still took faith from the disciples. There, there was still, they were still probably doubting, but they decided, they made a decision to put faith in him. And we see the difference, contrast that, verse 11, with verse 18. Now he has just cleared the temple. People were selling things in the temple. Jesus was not pumped about that. He did what any normal person would do. He makes a whip, starts driving everybody out of there. And then in verse 18, the Jews, this is what the Jews say. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So they say, how can you prove your authority? So here's the contrast. Proof is what you ask for when you're out of relationship with God and you just, you need him, you need there to be no doubt in order to follow him. You want there to be no shred of doubt. You just want to say, Jesus, if you would just show me a sign, I would believe you. A lot of people have said that. And in fact, the truth of the matter is, I believe if Jesus showed up in all of his glory right here, right now, there would be no question, there would be no faith involved at all because I believe every molecule in your body would begin responding to the glory of Jesus. You would bow down and worship. You wouldn't even have a choice in that if his full glory was manifested right here. And so a lot of people want there to be no room for faith in their walk with Christ. But guys, no amount of evidence that he brings down is ever going to take out the need for faith. Because whatever he, anytime he did something amazing in the Bible, it's still, they needed faith to follow him. So revelation is what God brings to hungry people who are truly wanting more. It's okay to ask for a sign. It's okay to call out to Jesus for that because God will know your heart and he knows, are you just trying to get me to prove something or do you truly want to know me more as a person? And Jesus also hints towards this when he talks about parables. A lot, a lot of us may think that Jesus told parables in order to make things simple so more people would understand it. And I mean, that kind of makes sense. But when we look at what he says, it's actually sort of the opposite. Jesus told parables to hide truths from people so that they wouldn't see unless they were hungry and came to him. And so we see in Matthew, Matthew 13, his, he's telling parables. His disciples, verse 10, say, why do you speak to the people in parables? Because honestly, they're just as confused as everyone else. You know, so they're, they're probably saying like, Jesus, we really don't understand anything you're saying. Why do you do this? In verse 13, Jesus says, this is why. Though seeing, they do not see Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And a little later, he says, For this people's heart has become calloused, 
They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. And so what he's saying is it's not about just whether you can understand a story or a sermon or anything like that. It's really about a relationship. These people have closed their hearts to him. They have calloused hearts. And so even though they hear him, they don't actually hear what he's saying. Contrast that with what the disciples experience. So if we go over in uh, verse 33, that he's telling more parables. So he's just going on this string of parables. And then the disciples come up to him and they're like, Jesus, what did this parable mean? So they just blatantly ask him, and then let's, let's read this. It's actually verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of, in the field, which was one he had just told. And so just by asking Jesus, they were fulfilling the purpose of the parables. They were being drawn near to him, coming closer to him in relationship with him. And with that came the truth. Jesus explains it to him right after that. So Jesus wants us to press into him as a person, not as a concept. Some people follow Jesus as a concept. And they mark Christian on their Facebook profile. And they show up to church. God wants more than that. He wants a unique relationship with you individually as a person. And so let's hop over to John 6. John 6, we see a lot of truth about a group of people that was following Jesus as a concept and a group of people that was following Jesus as a relationship. So at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Has one boy's lunch, feeds 5,000 men, plus all the women and children. So they see this, and in verse 14... It says, after the people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they're thinking already, surely this is the prophet. They're putting him in a box. Surely this is the person we learned about in school. You know, like light bulbs are going off. They're like, I think, I think this might be that person. Let's see. And so they see this miraculous sign. And then a few verses later, Jesus has like withdrawn. It's the next day. He walked on water, doing normal Jesus stuff that night. And they find him again. And what, what starts happening in verse 25 is to me, I feel like it's like watching a ping pong match. It's like they're going back and forth. Jesus is trying to point people towards himself. And they're just like, like it just goes right over their heads. So let's read in verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So they saw the miracle, food multiplied. They're coming back, they want more. And Jesus is trying to point them away from the physical things and towards food for eternal life. So he's already like, dropping big hints right here. I'm not just talking about food. Then they come back and say, what must we do to do the works God requires? So that kind of goes over their head. And now they're thinking, oh, okay, what must we do? You know, they're like, maybe there's another list of rules. We're good at following rules. We're good at theology. 
You know, they've got their pen and paper out. They're like, Jesus, what are, what are we got to do? So they're, they're wanting that from him. And Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So again, a pretty obvious drawing them back, drawing them away from just thinking about food, but he's drawing them towards himself. Verse 30. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Does that sound familiar? They're asking for a sign again. And this is the same crowd that had seen the great multiplication of food earlier. It's like they're asking Jesus to do it again. They think that maybe there was some trick. You know, they're like, man, I know I closed my eyes during that prayer. I bet Jesus just pulled the food out from behind a tree. You know, do it again, Jesus. I, 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 we need to see this again. And after that, they say, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. So they're referring to when God provided manna for the Israelites in the desert. And they're kind of hinting like, Jesus, back then, Moses gave them food every day for 40 years. Like, can you hook us up with that deal? Like, that sounds pretty good. And so they're just thinking along old covenant lines this whole time. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says the bread of God is he. He's pointing to a person. He's pointing to himself in this instance. And they said, sir, from now on, give us this bread. And so they're still thinking, they're just like, this must be some crazy bread. I'm pumped for this. Sign me up for that. Give us this bread. And Jesus just finally, like this is the end of the point in the ping pong. He slams it. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So he just he just hits it home right there and says, guys, you keep concentrating on these earthly things, but it's me. I'm a person. I want to have a relationship with you. So he, he keeps talking about this. He kind of goes on a sermon here, talks about him being the bread of life. And skip forward to verse 53 of chapter 6. Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so as, as Putty Putman, who teaches our School of Kingdom Ministry, put, he's like, you have to become cannibals and vampires, you know, <laughs> eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so, again, they have this relationship with a theology, with a concept of who Jesus is supposed to be, what he's supposed to look like. This is not in their box. Jesus said, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So he's contrasting the two covenants. The old covenant, you eat it and you still die. Even when you sacrifice an animal, the next time you sin, you're still sinful. Contrast that with the new covenant where we consume Jesus and we have his identity. And no matter what happens in our life, we still live through the identity of Christ. So he's calling us back <clears throat> to a relationship. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So these are, this is not like the 12 disciples saying this, but his whole group of disciples. And then he had his core, which are the 12. 
So they're talking about theology. This is a hard teaching, Jesus. This doesn't fit our idea of this prophet that we were thinking of. So verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So when you have a relationship with a concept, once that person acts in a way that's outside of the concept, it's going to cause a disconnection. Whereas if you're in a relationship with a person, mystery actually brings you closer to them. Something you don't understand about them actually draws you in and you ask, hey, I want to get to know you more. I want to learn more about you. And this is true in our natural relationships too. If you're in a relationship with someone, if, you're just, if you have this idea of them and they act outside of that, you're going to be gone. You're like, no, I can't do this anymore. But if you decide, if you make a commitment that you are going to pursue them regardless of what happens, then when something happens that's outside of that, you're like, okay, I don't understand that, but I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to press in. I'm going to connect with you. And so this is like friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whatever it looks like. And then it's also the way God wants us to interact with him. Maybe it's, maybe it's like you prayed for someone and they didn't get healed. You're like, that's not supposed to happen. In the Bible, it says if you lay your hands on the sick, they'll recover. So why didn't that happen? You could either say, I'm not having this, God. That's outside of who I thought you were. Or you can say, Jesus, I don't understand what happened, but I don't have all the facts of the situation. And the fact I do have is that you're a good God and you're a healing God and your desire is to heal people. And you can keep pursuing Jesus and get closer to his heart that way. So you have to answer the question, are you going to let your circumstances define your relationships or will you let your relationships define your circumstances? Because the disciples here, let's read on. Verse 68, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 67, you do not want to leave me too, Jesus asked the 12. So now he goes to the 12. He sees everyone else desert him. He's like, guys, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And so they say, I mean, it's, they didn't understand it either. Simon is probably like, I don't know what this flesh and blood thing is going to look like, but I don't care, Jesus, because I'm following you. I'm following you as a person. And he said, I'm not going to let some, when you act out of who I thought you were, I'm not going to let that stop me because I know I'm in relationship with you. And he kept pursuing him. And so guys, I'm convinced this morning that Jesus holds the solution to absolutely every problem that we can face. Every problem on the earth. King Jesus holds the solution. And we have to decide, are we going to press into that? Are we going to press into him as a person or are we just going to show up at church and, you know, like I said, put it on your Facebook profile and, and just be that type of Christian? I believe God wants us to press into him. God wants to take us to the greater things. God wants to show us more of his face. You may be saying, man, if, if you would just open a door for me, God, Jesus says, I am the door. 
Jesus said, I'm the gate that the sheep go through. He's the door, guys. If you say, God, if you would just show me the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the answer for absolutely every problem we'll face, and he is radically pursuing everyone in this room. And you might say, well, that's just something that my friends do. Or you say, that's just something that my family does, or my wife does, you know? But God wants a relationship personally with every person. He wants you to to come to him, enter that new covenant, enter that new life, and not only just make a one-time decision, but then pursue him every day and continue to grow closer to him. Continue to make him a part of your life. And so Jesus is God and God is a person. He's radically pursuing you guys. And I feel like this church is, we're stepping into like a a new season of, like I said, just going full out in worship of King Jesus you know, leaving, leaving everything behind, sacrificing in here so that it's easier to sacrifice out there. When we sacrifice for God in here, when we risk in here, when we don't care what people think about us in here, it's going to affect our lives out there. It's like budgeting. When I, when I budget at the beginning of the month to give money away, when I say, hey, this is my tithe, the 10%, then this extra is what I just want to give away. When I say that, then when I'm encountering a problem or someone asking me for money, it's not as much of a sacrifice because I'm already, like, I'm already dead to that money. I've already given it. It's not as much of a sacrifice. So when we worship Jesus with everything, when we get goofy in worship like a child before him, we're like sacrificing ourselves to God. We are the worship. And then when we go out on the streets, everything just flows naturally. When you're in your workplace, everything flows naturally because you've already given it all to him. So we're going to continue worshiping right now. We're going to continue worshiping this Jesus And we're going to continue pursuing him as a person. So I'm going to invite Van back up here.